Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Hello, church. Perry and I are just back from 17 days in India. We're mostly back. Our our souls are about over Nova Scotia. They're trying to catch up. 12-hour time zone change is the mother of all jet lags. 11 and a half. Okay, let's be correct. 11 and a half. Yeah, they're on a... It's a a weird... So... uh, Man, we had a good time. This was my 15th time to India, but I hadn't been in 12 years. And I went for several reasons, but one was to to see how my friends are doing. And I I bring a good report. You know, first we went up to Kurukshetra to see KD Bud. Anybody remember KD? Some of you do. Some of you do. Well, KD's, you know, he's well into his 80s now, and he's, he's declining cognitively, but he's just as happy as he can be. And the, the best part is that his son, Paul, is continuing leading that ministry, Temple of Christ, and just doing great. And it just, I just, oh, I blessed my soul to see how well they're doing. And then later, we were with... Uh, PG and Lily Vargas, how many of you remember them? And uh, they're doing great. PG's, I think, 81 now, but he's just going strong. But the ministry now has, has, has been led for the last several years by his son, A.B., and his wife, Babitha, I.E.T., and they're doing great. And uh, so then in Hyderabad, I spoke to 387 of their leaders. When I say leaders, these are not pastors. They're, to use a term that they don't use, but they're essentially bishops. They're leaders, they're pastors of pastors. Uh, how many pastors do they have now, Perry? Do you remember? It was like five or 6,000, something like that. Uh, but these were the leaders of leaders, 387 of them. They invited me to come and speak to them nine times, 90 minutes each. I said, I can tell you everything I know two or three times. Nine times, 90 minutes each. But it went great. And uh, it was, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it was wonderful. And so I bring, you know, a good report that things are, they're, they're flourishing amidst tremendous persecution. You should know this, that in northern India, uh, most of the pastors have suffered persecution. IAT hasn't had any of them killed, but most of them have been beaten. And uh, 17 of them have had their houses burned down. And yet, and yet, they have tremendous joy and they continue to proclaim the gospel. And so we were there to witness and that was awesome. Um, It also meant that I was in India for the Super Bowl. Now, I know this isn't the most important thing, but I'm going to talk about it. Because people said to me, they said to me, what what are you thinking? I mean, my grandson said, Papa, what what are you thinking? I said, well, I wasn't. It, it happens to be the greatest scheduling error in the history of scheduling. It turns out the Super Bowl is not very popular in India. It might be to the fact that it comes on at 4.30 in a Monday morning. 
but we figured it out and we were, you know, in a hotel room up at 4.30 in the morning. And, and uh, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. All right, enough of that. Let's, uh, we, we have work to do here today, but it's going to be good work. And so let's, let's pray. Hallelujah. Lord, I thank you for what we've seen, how you are working in India. We continue to bless Temple of Christ and IET and all they're doing. May they continue to flourish. May they be strengthened. May they be protected. May they be encouraged. And, oh, God of invisibility and silence, you have made yourself to be seen and heard in the word the Word made flesh, the Logos of life who is Jesus Christ. May that light shine upon us today. May we hear that Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 17, 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun. And his raiment was white as the light. The transfiguration of Jesus Christ has been central to my theology for many years now. There is so much theology in the transfiguration. So much to be seen. So much to say. Uh, you know, we can talk about how the transfiguration Figuration at Tabor is the turning point in the gospel story of Jesus. I mean, we have the story up here in Icon. We begin his ministry with his baptism, and then it reaches this high point, this crescendo on Mount Tabor with the transfiguration. And then from there on, it's downhill to the crucifixion in the gospel story. So that's why, I mean, it's appropriate that Transfiguration Sunday is the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. Because now we begin the journey to Golgotha. Uh, at the transfiguration, Jesus outshines the law and prophets represented by Moses and Elijah. Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah, the prophet, the law and the prophets, they've done their work, but it's only completed in Christ. And so Mount Tabor is where the project is finally handed over to the one who will carry it through to fulfillment. Moses and Elijah on Tabor find their true successor in Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that. Uh, it's on Mount Tabor that we learn that Jesus is what God has to say. When um, Peter came up with his various ideas about what they might do, the voice from the bright cloud said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is what God has to say. It's here on Tabor that we see the eschatological anticipation of creation made resplendent in glory. Or to say it another way, Christ transfigured is a prophecy of all creation to be transfigured into glory. Hallelujah. But on this Transfiguration Sunday, I want to look at the central feature of Tabor. When Jesus was transfigured on the holy mountain, his face did shine as the sun. 
At Christmas time, we sing, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And it's true that in the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth, the glory of deity was veiled. So that one who saw Jesus of Nazareth, I mean, if you happen to show up in Nazareth, and one who happened to see Jesus of Nazareth might suppose that they saw nothing other than a Galilean carpenter, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. But at Tabor, the veil was removed, or to say it more correctly, I suppose, at Tabor, the glory shone through the veil. And his face did shine as the sun. And his raiment was white as the light. This is the glory of God shining through the veil of the flesh of Jesus Christ. And on Mount Tabor, Peter, James, and John saw with their own eyes who Jesus really is. What they thought up to that point. I mean, Peter has made his confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's six days later that he takes them up on this high mountain. But what did they believe in him being Messiah? Who knows exactly what they believe. But now... At the transfiguration, they see Jesus for who he really is, the Word made flesh. The fullness of deity in bodily form. True God from true God made true man. Through the incarnation of the Logos, the silent and invisible God is at last seen and heard. Come on now. At the transfiguration, The invisible and silent God is at last seen and heard. The light of Tabor is the uncreated light of God shining through the mortal flesh of Jesus. And the witness of the Gospels is that Jesus Christ is the light of God illuminating the darkness. John says, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. So when Jesus, as the light, the true light that enlightens everyone, as the light comes into the world, John says, this is the judgment. What do we mean by that? Well, now that the light has come, what will we do? Will we shrink back into the darkness so that we can stay the way we've been? Will we turn our back to the sun because the light is too intense? Or will we come into the light, allow the light to judge us, and then we respond accordingly? I mean, once you've come into the searing light of Jesus Christ and just stood there, I mean, now you're in the light of truth. And what are you going to do? Will you stay the same or what will you do? My favorite artistic depiction of the transfiguration, and I think it's difficult to depict, 
But my favorite artistic interpretation of the Transfiguration is by Lubusche Lucas Miller. She was a Czech-American theologian, philosopher, and artist. Best known as a theologian and philosopher, but she also has her art. And this is her transfiguration. I like that one a lot. Uh, for me, her transfiguration captures both the glory and the terror of Tabor. Yes, I said terror. I mean, Peter, James, and John were terrified. If you'd been there, you would have been too. But there is an ongoing kind of holy terror that occurs when we stand in the light of Christ. I mean, there is a comfort we find or try to find in our lies. Tell me lies, sweet little lies that we tell about ourselves so that we don't have to change. But in the searing light of Christ, there's nowhere to hide. It's the terror of having to suddenly decide in the light of Christ how we're going to live our lives. Christ moves through the world as the invisible and silent God now seen and heard. Now, can you know God apart from Christ? Well, you know, there is the witness of nature and there is the witness of the human construct of religion in its various forms. But even that, I mean, whether we're talking about the witness of nature or religion in its, in its, you know, in its best forms, hey, the witness of nature and the human construct of religion is at best hints and guesses about what God is like. And we get some things right and we get a lot wrong. So if we're left just to the witness of nature and the human construct of religion, we're going to have, well, we're not going to arrive at the full truth of who God is. God is perceived through nature and through religion as one might perceive the world by starlight and moonlight. I mean, imagine if you'd only ever seen the world by starlight and moonlight. And you, you would have an idea of what the world is like. You would think you know what the world is like. But imagine there had been ages of only starlight and moonlight, and that's all you ever knew. And then one day the sun rose. Come on now. One day the sun of righteousness rises with healing in his rays. Well, that changes everything. You say, I thought I knew what this world was like. Now I see it for the first time. That's Christ. That's the light of the world. That's transfiguration. In Christ, the moonlight and starlight of the witness of nature and the human construct of religion are infinitely outshone by the sunlight. His face did shine as the sun. What I'm saying is that Christ is to this world what the sun is to the earth. Christ has removed the guesswork of what God is like. We don't have to keep guessing anymore. I know, I say it all the time, but it's part of our liturgy at Word of Life. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known this. But since the transfiguration and all of that, now we know what God is like because his face did shine as the sun. To see the face of Jesus is to see the face of God. To see Jesus in action is to see what God does and what God is like. But 
It comes with a challenge. Will we dare to live our lives in the light of Christ? There are those that will shrink back and say, no. Let me go back. Let me go back into the darkness. If we say, though, yes, I will live my life in the light of Christ, it will lead to some radical rethinking about how we live our lives, which is what repentance really is and what Lent is really about. Lent is really about a time of reevaluation and rethinking our life in the light of Christ. I mean, give up chocolate if you want. That's fine. I'm, it's probably, you know, good. But Lent isn't about giving up chocolate. Lent is about a time of reflection and reevaluation of your life in the light of Christ that you might rethink some things and say, you know what, in the light of Christ, I'm going to adjust. I'm going to make some course corrections. I'm going to respond accordingly to the light that is shining upon my life. That's what Lent is about. Now, we haven't always, in our 41-year history of Word of Life Church, emphasized or observed Lent. In fact, in the earliest half of our church, we probably ignored it entirely. You know, we didn't start paying attention until Good Friday, and then <laughs> that's about it. We really began to, in earnest, emphasize Lent 17 years ago. Now, 17 years ago, just this, right this time, 17, February 2006, I was in India. I had preached and taught at this enormous pastor's gathering, thousands of pastors, in Orissa, that's one of the states in northern India. Following that, I had a couple of days in New Delhi because I just liked being in New Delhi. And it was a time for me to sort of, you know, relax, just enjoy being there, get ready to go home. And I was staying at the Imperial Hotel. I got to tell you, it's my favorite hotel in the whole wide world. I found this hotel 30 years ago. And I just, it's, it's like one of my favorite places. Perry and I got to spend one night there this trip, it was, it was, it was the day, because it was day for me, the day that the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. And it was like, it was the day before, it was like our Valentine's Day, and it was, it was wonderful. Well, 17 years ago, I was staying in that hotel. And what I was doing was, I was, I was there relaxing, but I was working too. And I was preparing because I felt like the Spirit laid it on my heart to do this thing. That during Lent, I would preach a series of sermons that I called the unvarnished Jesus. And I called it that because I was realizing that the Jesus I had known and proclaimed and preached, though Jesus was there, there was a lot of varnish. There was a lot of American varnish, a lot of cultural varnish, a lot of political varnish, a lot of just varnishes of our assumptions. And I thought, well, what if we could get past that? What if we could at least attempt to encounter Jesus unvarnished? So that's what I was working on. I ended up writing 
And I'm not sure why it was. I think I went through, I can't remember how I did it, but I know I did write 61 blogs every day. I wrote one every day for 61 days, about 500 words each. That's a book. Well, I mean, it eventually became a book, but I mean, even then it was a book of sorts. But as I was, as I was planning to do this, a, a, a great wave of emotion came over me. You know how emotions are, they're hard. You, first of all, you can't stop them. And you can't dictate to them. You can't say, I want to feel this way. It's hard to do that. And I was feeling two things simultaneously. I was feeling a thrill of ecstasy, of really trying to attempt to encounter Jesus as he is. But also, there was also a company that was a wave of anxiety. Because I had a suspicion, I'm just going to say this, that not everybody was going to dig it. That a lot of them conflated in their minds the varnish with Jesus. And if I started taking that varnish that they cherished off of Jesus, they wouldn't like it and they would leave. And guess what? They did. So my fear was well-founded of sorts. Well, so I'm working on that in the, in the Imperial Hotel. And there was this moment where, where I, just, I just, sometimes you know. Sometimes you don't know when there's a pivotal moment in your life. Sometimes you do. And I thought, this is a pivotal moment in my life. And so I took a picture of it. That's, that, that's my little desk in my room in the Imperial Hotel. And there's my old Dell computer, my Dell laptop from 17 years ago, my Bible and my notebook. And I was working on, I, I noticed I got, there's an old travel alarm there. This is before we used our phones for everything. And uh, I thought, well, this is a pivotal moment. And I'm going to just memorialize it in this photo. And then I went for a long walk to try to just shake off the anxiety. But I have to say, I wasn't only afraid. I was, I was thrilled, but I was afraid. But I was afraid, but I was thrilled. And so I went for this long walk all the way from the Imperial Hotel to the Gate of India. Long walk. Let's say something about Salmon Rushdie. This is all going to come together. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Salmon Rushdie. He's, uh, well, he's arguably, I mean, he would be in the running for the greatest living novelist. I first read a novel by him way back in 1991. My first time to India, Abraham Butt told me about him and said, you should read him. And I read Midnight's Children, the one that he won the Booker of Books Prize for. And subsequently, I've read almost all of his novels and even his nonfiction works, his memoir, all of that. I'm, I'm just in awe of his writing prowess. I just, you know, I don't know if there's a better living writer than Salman. And this man has suffered for his writing. You know, the fatwa against him and he lived in hiding. And then just back in September, he got attacked lost the sight in one of his eyes and lost the use of one of his arms. I mean, that's suffering for your art. So I was, 17 years ago, I was working on outlining the Unvarnished Jesus sermon series. It really changed the trajectory of our church. And then I'm flying home and I'm reading a book of essays 
by Salman Rushdie called Step Across This Line. And one of the essays in Step Across This Line is an essay on the Taj Mahal. Okay, the Taj Mahal. To my mind, maybe the most beautiful building in the world. And uh, I'd been to it a couple of times. And then I took Perry one time. And Perry had a bad experience that I'm going to read to you a little bit from Salman Rushdie, but he talks about how you can have a bad experience. Because getting there, you have all these vendors that are hassling you and trying to sell you these little fake, cheap little Taj Mahals. And you got to push through them, and it's a bad experience. And so I said, I want to go back. I don't think Perry wanted to go. I said, well, let's go back because we're going to give it a better shot this time. Perry, you're going you're gonna to like this. And so we got a good guide, and, and they've changed some things there. They've kind of clamped down on that. It's not as onerous as it once was. But Perry had a great experience there. Yeah, I think so. I think so. You can ask her. You can ask her. She says, give, she's giving me a thumbs up. So I, I think she did. But now I want to... Um, and then as I read this, we'll, we'll show you some photos that I took just last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was, when I was there. But I want you to listen to this. You think I'm preaching about the Taj Mahal, but hang on, hang on. This is from Salman Rushdie, Step Across This Line, a paragraph from his essay on the Taj Mahal. The problem with the Taj Mahal is that it has become so overlaid with accumulated meanings as to be almost impossible to see. When you arrive at the outer walls of the gardens in which the Taj is set, it's as if every hustler and hawker in Agra is waiting for you to make the familiarity breeds contempt problem worse, peddling imitation mahals of every size and price. This leads to a certain amount of shoulder-shrugging disenchantment. Recently, a British friend who was about to make his first visit to India told me that he had decided to leave the Taj off his itinerary because of its overexposure. If I urged him not to, it's because of my own vivid memory of pushing my way for the first time through the jostling crowd of imitation vendors, past all the myriad hawkers of meaning and interpretation, and into the presence of the thing itself, which utterly overwhelmed me and made all my notions about its devaluation feel totally and completely redundant. The building itself left my skepticism in shreds, announcing itself as itself, insisting with absolute force on its sovereign authority, it simply obliterated the million, million counterfeits of it and glowingly filled once and forever the place in the mind previously occupied by the cheap imitations of its simulacra. Okay, I'm reading this on the plane, flying home from India with a heart full of unvarnished Jesus ideas, and I read this an essay about the Taj Mahal, and I tell you, I wanted to run the aisles of that plane shouting hallelujah. I, I want to just, glory to God, run the aisles. You, you don't, because what, what Salman Rushdie was saying about the Taj Mahal was exactly what I wanted to say about Jesus. It's exactly the same. In fact, I'll, I'll go through it again. The problem with Christianity is that Jesus has become so overlaid with accumulated meanings as to be almost impossible to see. Come on now. How many of you know that's true? Everybody trying to hijack Jesus. 
When you arrive at the church, it's as if every hustler and hawker is waiting for you to make the familiarity breeds contempt problem worse. Peddling imitation Jesus of every size and price. This leads to a certain amount of shoulder-shrugging disenchantment. Recently, a friend who was going through deconstruction (laughs) told me that he had decided to leave Jesus off his itinerary because he's been overexposed and all that. If I urged him not to, it's because of my own vivid memory of pushing my way for the first time through the jostling crowd of imitation vendors, past all the myriad hawkers of meaning and interpretation into the presence of the person himself which utterly overwhelmed me and made all my notions about his devaluation feel totally and completely redundant. The person himself left my skepticism in shreds, announcing himself as himself, insisting with absolute force on his sovereign authority. He simply obliterated the million, million counterfeits of himself and glowingly filled once and forever the place in my mind and heart previously occupied by cheap imitations of a varnished Jesus. Yeah. All right. I'm going to look into the camera because someone needs to hear this. I mean, you're here, but someone out there, I think they're out there, needs to hear this. I know... There are well-intended post-Christian justice movements that imagine that Jesus is superfluous. But Jesus is as superfluous to justice as the sun is superfluous to the earth. True justice can only flourish in the true light, and Jesus is the true light. Jesus is the light of the world. So this Lent, don't hide from Jesus. Step into the light. Step into the light. I mean, is it a little bit scary? It's a little bit scary. But the one from whom the light emanates has nothing but love for you. Nothing but love. And the light that comes as judgment is the light of love. He loves you too much to leave you as you are. He wants you to become who you are meant to be. And so step into the light. The Sinai Pantocrator. It's the oldest icon in the world. It's in St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai. You can find... You can find it anywhere, you know, copies, cheap, you know. You could find, you could print one, your own. You know, just find a nice photo of it on the internet and print it out. Try sitting with Jesus, sitting with Jesus, with this icon in front of you. Just try that. Try, I, I, I do that. I've done this now for years. I haven't ever recommended it to people, but it's what I do. I will regularly sit with Jesus, with his icon in front of me. And I can tell you, it can be a bit unnerving. 
But I also can tell you it can bring deep healing. Because, because look, this is the one who is the truth. This is the truth. What is truth? The truth is a person. The truth is Jesus Christ. With whom we have to do. With whom all things are naked and laid bare before him. I mean, we, we, we hide, we have our excuses, we pretend, we wear our masks. But if you just sit in the presence of this one, it'll burn that wood, hay, and stubble right off of you. It's, it's like radiation therapy. I just sit with that and I let the light of Christ just, I don't know if this is, I don't know if you're getting this. To sit, yeah, I, know, I know the icon isn't Jesus, but it is a portal to Jesus. That's the idea, that you have this image of the one you know is the word of God, Jesus Christ. And you look at this holy image, Sinai Pantocrator, Christ Almighty. And it's hard not to be honest. You, you, you can't look in his eyes and tell him lies because you know he knows. But you also know that he loves you. His judgment is only love. And you sit there and you just, you don't run away from it. You just allow that radiation, that light, that white heat to burn away the wood, the hay, the stubble, the chaff, the stuff that you don't need. Try it during Lent and see what happens. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. And the light shines in the darkness. And the light shines in the darkness. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overcome it. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. <clears throat> and now we come to the table of the Lord to receive his grace, communicated in the bread and wine, the body and blood of Jesus. Join with me in confessing together our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. 
We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. So, in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.